0: You're listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast, exploring the rich, flavorful history of Manitoba food and the people who make it, sell it, and eat it. From the packing table to the dinner table, from restaurant specials to grandma's secret recipes, we consider the cultural, social, and commercial aspects of Manitoba food and what it means to us. I'm your host, Kent Davies. As per usual, I'm joined with Manitoba business historian, Professor Janice Thiessen.
1: Hi Kent, what's in the pantry for us today?
0: Today we're talking about family farms in Manitoba.
1: Nice. My parents were farmers in Manitoba near Carmen in Miami before I was born. Uh, My two older siblings grew up on the farm, but my twin and I were born in Winnipeg after the folks moved there.
0: So I kind of have a similar story with my family. My mother's family were all farmers, so I spent a lot of summers on the farm, albeit it was in Saskatchewan and not Manitoba. But she left the farm and her brothers continued it on. But that wasn't really the story with the next generation when my cousins all moved to bigger towns or cities and did their own thing. That's what's happened to a lot of family farms, as far as I can tell.
1: True. Most Manitobans today are urban rather than rural. That's a shift that happened back in the 60s. Daniel Nychuk, who studied last year with us here at the U of W as an Indigenous summer scholar, was able to interview his grandma, who was born in Germany, about her experiences on their family farm in Osborne, Manitoba.
0: Before we hear the podcast segment he created, we should probably share some broader history of farming in Manitoba.
1: Good idea. People in Manitoba have been defining and defending the notion of the family farm for decades. It's worth noting that there is no single definition of a family farm. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization says the definition often varies based on country, context, author, and political motivation. Canada's census does not use the term family farm, but instead distinguishes between sole proprietorships, partnerships, and corporations. All these categories can have varying degrees of family ownership and involvement, blurring the line between family farm and corporate farm. What is clear though, is that the number of Canadian farms has decreased and their average size has increased over the last century and a half. According to the 1871 census, there were more than 360,000 farms with an average size of 98 acres. By 2016, there were less than 194,000 farms, averaging 820 acres. Southern Manitoba's unique geography and history influenced the type of farming that emerged here. As historian Ken Sylvester argues, Western Canada's short growing season made large-scale, profit-driven farm operations not as attractive as elsewhere. Unlike in eastern Canada and the eastern United States, the Anglo-Canadian-dominated agricultural system that emerged in Manitoba in the 1870s was heavily capitalistic and metropolitan from its beginning, complicating the extent to which small-scale family farming existed in southern Manitoba. Manitoba's position within Canada's broader economic development is also important when considering how farming practices changed over time and what farming ideologies were responding to. For example, late 19th century federal policy placed greater emphasis on domestic capital and internal markets by supporting agricultural producers as core components of this domestic-focused capitalism. By early to mid-20th century, however, the shift towards international corporate capitalism with modernized technology and large-scale production made domestic farmers less important to Canada's agricultural policy. Indigenous peoples in and around what is now southern Manitoba have practiced agriculture for millennia. Indigenous farmers developed, grew and traded many plants such as sunflowers, beans and potatoes. Many of these crops remain some of Manitoba's top exports. As farmer Chris Newman argues, understanding indigenous agricultural practices requires understanding indigenous systems of knowledge, worldviews, ecosystems, and land relationships that are often highly distinct from those of settler communities. Indigenous forms of agriculture have survived and adapted alongside settler agriculture, despite colonial efforts to undermine indigenous farmers. By the 1880s, many Indigenous communities operated successful farms, defying Canadians' racist view of Indigenous people as incapable of farming. While government officials promoted agriculture as a means of assimilation, First Nations farmers often shaped their farming practices to support community needs over officials' expectations, and to maintain traditional economic practices on their lands. Many Indigenous farmers' community-centred approaches to labour and farming finances also contrasted with the type of family-centred settler farming promoted by the Canadian government. Métis scholar Chelsea Vowell notes many Métis families across the prairies have extensive agricultural histories despite settler biases about Indigenous farming. Vowell states, the fact is our people adapted swiftly to a set of completely new conditions and we were damn good at it. Just as shifts in political and economic interests have impacted broader perceptions of what constitutes proper agriculture, the definition and value of the family farm has also changed. In defining the family farm as the ideal form of settler agriculture on the prairies, political and economic leaders also defined ideal forms of the family, particularly regarding gender. The diverse experiences of different settler farming groups in the late 1800s brings these narrow understandings of gender roles and division of labor into question. Farm researcher Charlotte Van Devorst notes that many of the earliest settler farms had to rely on the entire family's labour due to limited supplies and technology and isolation from other farms and communities. Women would thus often engage in what was considered traditionally male work duties. The development of commercial grain farming in the 1880s in part led to a decline in shared tasks between men and women, and greater division between men's work, namely commercial production, and women's work, namely subsistence and domestic activities. These changes were most pronounced on wealthier farms where mechanization and expanded farm acres increased demand for male farm workers, making grain production more and more an exclusively male endeavor. The early waves of Anglo-Ontario farmers in the 1870s often received the most prime farmlands, allowing them to adopt commercial agriculture relatively early. Later settler groups, such as Ukrainians, received more difficult land to work with, and often did not receive the same financial aid as earlier groups resulting in a greater reliance on the full family's labour. But even on larger, more commercialized farms, women operated key side enterprises to save on costs and earn more cash income, which was essential for continued commercialization due to high costs of mechanized equipment and acquiring more land for cash crops. Factors such as land conditions, periods of migration, economic class, and mechanization all impacted how settler farm families organized their labour and gender roles. On the family farm, the definition of masculinity changed over time, shaped by these economic and social circumstances. Historian Cecilia Danzik's Examination of European Colonization and Settlement of the Western Canadian Prairies from 1880 to 1930 focuses on this changing definition among the mostly unmarried men who became farmers. Newspapers warned bachelors that without wives, their ability to raise crops and livestock, or even to feed themselves, would be seriously compromised. Hawks would eat their chickens. Pigs would uproot their gardens. Cattle would eat their crops. And calves would take all their mother's milk. They needed to find a wife quickly to avoid these catastrophes. In the 1880s, as Indigenous people were being dispossessed and land was being allocated to settlers, bachelor farmers were expected eventually to settle down, own a farm, marry, and raise a family. Those who had not done so were excused on the grounds that they were still economically unprepared to support a family or there was a shortage of women. By the 1920s, however, society's perceptions of prairie bachelors had shifted. There were more European women on the prairies, so more farmers were married, and bachelors tended instead to be farmhands, a role perceived as evidence of an unambitious nature. Manitoba's Department of Agriculture began to characterize farmworkers as men who have failed in pretty nearly every walk of life. A real man was a married man with his own farm. A century later, Mennonite historian and farmer Royden Lowen spoke with us about his own understandings of how societal perceptions shaped his work and masculine identity. He had been conventionally farming 1,700 acres, turkeys and grain, with his father and brother, but now is organically farming 320 acres with his son. Lowen says his switch to organic farming was made in part due to political and social reasons which he explained by sharing an exchange he had with the Richardson pioneer agronomist who had sold him the herbicides and the treated seed and the synthetic fertilizer when he was a conventional farmer. When the agronomist learned that Lowen was becoming an organic farmer instead, he said, oh no, you're going over
2: to the other side. And, I, and to placate him, I said, oh no, no, uh, Terry, it's entirely based on greed, uh, you know, so he's oh yeah, I can respect greed. I said, uh, there's two things, one, one is uh, I'm tired of you making more money uh, selling me herbicides than I make money uh, selling grain, so that's just greedy, I, I actually want more of the profit. Uh, and, but secondly, I said there's something called social capital, I said where I work, the University of Winnipeg, uh, you know, my status will increase uh, significantly if my colleagues find out that I'm an organic ag- a, a farmer, and he said, oh yeah, okay, he said, I, can, I, I, I can respect that too. Lowen's brother, by contrast,
1: organically farms only a quarter section of his many acres of land.
2: Lowen says his brother told him, "He says I can't possibly do more because I won't be respected." He said, "Whereas you're a professor, the so people know you're weird to begin with, uh, so 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 that's 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 fine."
1: Who is a good or real farmer is defined in much the same ways as who is a good or real man. Royden Lowen explains,
2: uh, "Farming is uh, farming is very much social." Uh, I mean, the farmers all look at one another. There's an informal pecking order as to who's a good farmer and who's not a good farmer. I mean, I learned that from my father. He, he, would, he would drive past land and he said, oh yeah, that's that guy. Or worse, he says, oh, that's a school teacher trying to farm. School teachers should not try to farm. Or uh, I remember we interviewed a guy, uh, uh, an organic farmer from Eltona, Joel Brown, who just told us how he, remembered, uh, and, I, and I absolutely resonate with this, that, that he detested his, his role as a conventional farmer in the 70s and 80s when they were using herbicides. And then he said, and of course you always had to overlap, uh, because it was, much, it was much better to overlap and have, have a strip of stunted grain from too much chemical than to allow wheat to have, to have, over, to have a strip of, of untreated land and there'd be a, you know, bright strip of mustard or something. That is, you know, that's just the biggest shame there was. Uh, so, um, my my father loved 2,4-D and MCPA when they came out in the 50s and 60s because for once you could get rid of that embarrassing mustard plant. It's not that mustard necessarily reduced your yield a lot, it was just like, it was such an obvious weed uh, that it, that it was so embarrassing. And so, uh yeah so farmers are all con- are constantly looking at uh, one another shaped by these social
1: expectations lowen chooses to grow sunflowers hemp and corn as these crops are tall
2: my brother who's a wheel farmer says i'm not part i'm not going to be organic farming with you at all if we can't impress the neighbors uh and so <laughs> well one thing is uh, we know the value of sunflowers and hemp and corn as organic uh, organic uh, uh, crops, one hand, because they're tall. <laughs> and so they'll hide the weeds. So we'll not be embarrassed.
0: So all that is old is new again.
1: Yeah, the shift to industrial agriculture and back again to organic agriculture is mirrored by the current emphasis on farm-to-table eating. Daniel Nychuk explores this history in his interview with his Oma, a farmer some 50 kilometers south of Winnipeg. Let's conclude our history of farming in Manitoba by hearing their story.
0: All right, let's have a listen.
3: It's my favourite time of year, with long warm days, filled with sunlight and outdoor activities. Of course I'm referring to summer, when the crops are beginning to ripen and everyone rushes to enjoy the brief months in Manitoba you can still stand to be outside without getting hit by minus 30 weather or a big snowstorm. But my favourite part of summer is when my Omas garden is in full swing with fresh fruit and vegetables with my personal favorite being her strawberries. Although small, they pack a flavor with a perfect balance of sweetness, juiciness, and tanginess that pairs exceptionally well with a bowl of ice cream for a nice dessert after a long day of work on the farm. My name is Daniel Nightchuck, and I come from a farm located in Osborne, Manitoba. And what I just explained is only a small taste of what it's like to live farm to table. In Manitoba, we get only a brief gardening season, making it impossible to experience these extravagant flavors year-round. And if the rabbits, birds, or late May or June frost don't get to your garden first, you may not experience it at all. My Oma has always had a nice garden to eat from. She has also passed this down to my mother. However, growing up in Germany was a little different, as they lived off the farm and garden to eat. The climate allowed them to produce their own protein, poultry, and produce year-round, to be able to experience that farm-to-table freshness.
4: We have a garden. Uh, uh, what I do, I buy peas and uh, asparagus. That's all what I have to do. Uh, uh, up I have potatoes and early potatoes. And uh, we have lots of stuff in the garden. Red Cabbage, white, uh, and lots of trees on the farm in Germany. Nice uh, apples and peels. And
3: for the garden, did you ever sell in your garden, or was it just for you to eat?
4: Yes, yes, yeah. and for the neighbor. For the I, I, I put uh, stuff on for the neighbor, the, looking after my kids oh. when I wasn't there. Right, OK. And, and then I put, I give her always something Well I uh, enough. We bring our cows and, and pigs to the to the butcher. The butcher, yeah. And then they make what I like: the half soup meat and sausages and what you like on for and the bread and for, and the sandwich stuff. Yeah. What you like: the bacon and ham and they make that. And then. Many times I I sell a half cow or uh, the people like that from the farmer. We sell eggs and potatoes uh, on the farm, uh, Daniel, and all this stuff.
3: Were you responsible to sell it? Like did you, did you sell it to someone else to sell? Like did you sell it to a store to sell or did you sell it directly to People
4: to, to, eat, people to people. To people. That, uh, that they get fresh. That uh, yeah, they get fresh. Yeah, who they look after this.
3: Okay, yeah. So, was it mostly then all your friends and neighbors that were close uh, by? Yeah, yeah, close yeah.
4: By? Okay. Yeah, yeah. The neighbors on, from the city.
3: That is the voice of Myoma, a farmer in southern Manitoba, who you can probably tell from the accent immigrated from Germany. I interviewed her while we were cutting and washing vegetables for a bone broth soup. She moved to Canada with her husband and two daughters in 1978. Myoma is describing her life in Germany and how she lived by purchasing very few items as she could mostly produce them herself. Hmm, that sounds familiar. Sounds like how our ancestors used to live. But how far back can we date this farm to table movement? Well, you could go all the way back to the Stone Age. In the book The Industrial Diet by Anthony Winson, he explains that during this time humans had no ability to store and very little technology, so their diet had to reflect what they could immediately hunt and gather in their area. But I think that might be going a little too far back in time. Trying to define the actual origins of agriculture is difficult. There are many ideas and theories of how agriculture came to be. For example, Jacques Cavan suggests that farming wasn't introduced as an economic system. But emerge alongside evolving cultural practices, including new cosmologies, religious practices, and symbolic behaviors. It was the result of changing ideas that included new relationships with the environment and how it could provide food. But I still think we may be a little too far back in time. Anthony Winson and Catherine Leonard Turner date the major turn toward modern agriculture in the industrial revolution as the late 19th to early 20th century. Now I think we're approaching the right time. During the Industrial Revolution, we saw a new way of going about agriculture as new technological innovations created easier transportation methods and improved techniques of storing and preserving foods, like refrigeration. In the mid 20th century, North America underwent major changes in food production and consumption. Before the Second World War, American food was by necessity farm to table. By the 1950s, small farms, short supply chains, and fresh produce began to give way to agribusiness. Food was processed, packaged, frozen, and canned as supply chains became larger. Supermarkets replaced small grocery stores, neighborhoods, produce stands, and independent butcher shops. In the 1970s and early 1980s, there was a small movement to put healthier foods in restaurants and houses, reviving the idea of fresh farm-to-table consumption. And today, we see this movement continuing to grow. For instance, if you go to local restaurants, you'll see advertising of farm-to-table foods to draw in consumers who are inclined to buy local. Berry patches in farmer's markets in summer is another good example as it allows people to pick foods directly from the producers, allowing the consumer to gain the satisfaction of knowing they are buying their foods directly from the source of production. Although more expensive, People still flash their wallets to experience this farm-to-table freshness. But with the high costs associated with farm-to-table dining, why is it that people don't do it on their own? I mean, is it really that hard to grow your own garden?
4: In Germany, I put always manure in. Mm -hmm. Each year, put a manure in. no fertilizer on that thing. I made a line, Mm
3: -hmm.
4: put the dirt on one and a half spade an den Top und in das Lein, in das Lein, was so dieper, yeah. putt er den Menü in, von mm-hmm. der Pause. Und dann die nächste, war noch eine halbe Spät, put mm-hmm. und putte dort an den Menü. Und das, er dreht hier mit der Spät. People, the neighbors coming by and see me, but they said, "Oh, that was so hard, Daniel." Ja. Yeah. I, yeah, ja. ja, we was not young, we was, and then they turn off "You cannot do it." Oh, yeah. That was something. And then, and then here, half red cabbage and white cabbage, and uh, suddenly. Hij uh, check het, een and ander dees, en and het was Jans, uh, wat is het, Holtz, en die hadden we eten. Oh ja, En dan, ik denk over twee jaar, of drie, vier jaar, en met cabbage, en red cabbage, en dan lees het, en niet meer. En nu, we put, eh, uh, mm-hmm. we tomatoes, en dan we had zo, dan hij put, it, uh, Potatoes in and then more, and then you eat all potatoes planted.
3: That was my Oma again, explaining her difficulties gardening in Canada and Germany. As you can tell, there's a lot of hard work involved. Between wildlife eating your vegetables, the labor that goes into it, and the uncontrollable weather, but there are definitely perks of producing your own foods. Imagine waking up in the morning to fresh buns that you know came from your eggs.
4: In Germany, we live here in the city, we get each morning five buns on the door. Fresh buns. That was not here.
3: Did you pay for that like um, before? like and then, Or did you have to go pay for it every morning? or how? Did no.
4: They come on uh, Saturday, they get eggs for me. Okay. 500 eggs mm-hmm. and then I buy. Uh, my stuff my my apple tart or what i like yeah sweet stuff on them mm-hmm. Don't.
3: so the bread was basically in exchange for the eggs as a yeah 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 the, to pay for the eggs you would get bread in the morning from yeah the b- buns yeah buns
4: and in then, the morning today they do it all no uh, yeah. okay it's too expensive it's too down expensive down
3: wow this seems like an interesting topic to go into depth on. Sounds like Oman was taking part in bartering during her time in Germany. Bartering is the exchange of goods or services between two parties that in most cases does not include a monetary transaction. If you think about it conceptually, before currency became a worldwide form of trade, people would rely on the trade of commodities and goods to survive. Once again, This may be a little too far back in history. So where can we situate bartering as the norm in terms of Canadian history? Canadian historian Alison Norman sums it up well in her chapter on culinary colonialism in Upper Canada. This chapter best dates this practice of bartering to pre-colonial times in Canada from the late 1700s to mid-1800s. Norman explains that bartering between Aboriginal women and British settling women in Upper Canada was common practice. It merged British settlers' way of life with that of First Nations to allow them to create new ways of trading, cooking, and eating. The concept of bartering is still used today in many small businesses around the world. Orla Stapleton, a doctor of philosophy in the Midwest United States, explains this idea. Stapleton mentions that the current mindset of society is that bartering is only used in the modern economy when we are experiencing an economic collapse. However, Stapleton argues that bartering is also a key part of modern small businesses, especially in the food and beverage, personal care, farming, and construction industries. Why does this matter? Well, much like my OMA's case, the exchange of goods or services between small businesses is key. Monetary exchange makes no sense when each business is provided a product for the same cost to each other. To live a farm-to-table lifestyle, these bartering transactions are necessary as they allow both sides to profit off their transactions. In my Oma's case, the producer is receiving a finished good from the raw material, while the middleman, the baker, gets the benefit by marketing their baked goods as locally produced. However, economic forces, including inflation, impact these types of transactions. As my Oma mentioned, the exchange of eggs for buns could no longer be sustainable in Germany today as it is too expensive for the baker to give away free buns. To recap, farm to table eating is not a new concept and has been around well before our time. I mean, how else were people supposed to eat before refrigeration? Bartering is still a big part of small businesses. And can be used to benefit both parties by leaving money outside of the transactions. However, farm-to-table has become increasingly expensive, making it difficult for the average consumer to enjoy farm-to-table fresh eating. But the price of farm-to-table includes a lot. It includes the rising expenses of small home producers like my oma, and losses due to variables like wildlife and weather. It includes the rising costs of small businesses as well. Which include labor equipment maintenance utilities and transportation but it also includes a system of community relationships that are challenging to maintain under economic pressures so the next time you're at a local farmer's market to buy fresh berries vegetables or whatever it may be remind yourself that sacrificing a few extra dollars includes all of those things in the end i think that the benefit will outweigh the cost when you get to experience the perfect balance of sweetness juiciness and tanginess of fresh strawberries like those from my almost garden
0: you've been listening to preserves a manitoba food history podcast produced by myself kent davies hosted by myself and janice theeson written by dory heligards jackson anderson daniel nightchuk and janice theeson Narrated by Daniel Nychuck and Janice Thiessen. Interviews by Daniel Nychuck and Janice Thiessen. Kimberly Moore creates the photos and images that accompany each podcast. Our theme music is by Robert Kenning. Preserves is recorded at the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center. You can check out the OHC and the work that we do at oralhistorycenter.ca. For more Manitoba Food History Project content, information, and events, go to manitobafoodhistory.ca. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have a Manitoba food story and you want to share it, contact us by clicking the contact link on the website. Preserves is made possible from a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Thanks for listening.